can we do like something else with this? Because I don't think any of this is usable. I mean, I, I actually think this is pretty good content. This is not I usable. Mean, I, I, people, it, people like get freaked out when you talk about two. Oh, problems. I know. Yeah. We'll just we'll do the trigger warning at the beginning. Trigger warning. We're going to talk about dental surgery for the first fifteen minutes of this podcast. <laughs> if you don't want to listen, you just fast forward. Yeah, I mean, we can. Um, I mean, this is our season finale extravaganza. Oh shit, we need something good. Got to keep the listeners happy. They're not going to buy merch if we're not putting out new episodes. That's what I've learned. Oh, and the sponsors will get uh, get restless. Squarespace sent me an angry email. <laughs> Where's the ad read? Mail, mail chimp. <laughs> Make your next move with Squarespace. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me today, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? I hope you had a very nice Thanksgiving. Oh, it's great. Hey, it's the season finale. This is exciting. I think we had a good, we had a good season. I uh, covered a lot of ground this semester. This is the season finale. Yes. So we better, we better make it a good one. Yeah. It's potentially series finale. There's, <laughs> there's no way to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's give the, the viewer or the listener a, a, a look behind the scenes at how political science knowledge is made and talk about our paper a little bit. Sure, let's do it. I think we should talk about where this the idea for this paper came from. Our other esteemed colleague, uh, Mike Tierney, who is a, a, also a faculty member in the Department of Government, forwarded to us and a couple other people uh, an article that he had read, and it talks about the use of blockchain technology to secure diplomatic communications and uh, maybe facilitate uh, diplomacy in some way in the internet-connected communication age in which we live. And let me, this is just for the listener, what... Jeff, what is blockchain technology? Yeah, we're not going to do a we're not going to do a blockchain. Well, you can't, you can't use a, a a vocab term and like that. Half the the listeners aren't going to be. A, I mean, everybody is that a comment? Everybody knows I'll, what blockchain. I'll, I'll is? explain it. I'm going to explain All it. Right. I'm going right. to explain it. So, and then next do next do Bitcoin. <laughs> right. So I mean, as everyone who listens to this, except Professor Holmes, is aware, a blockchain technology is a distributed ledger technology, and it's a way that you can kind of authenticate that someone has made an entry into this distributed ledger and everyone can see that it's there. And it's a system by which you can have kind of trusted entries that you can know that others have done this and you can verify that it's been done. And this is kind of the underlying for the you've all heard of this in the context of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, where this is kind of the underlying technology behind Bitcoin. It's what makes Bitcoin work is this kind of distributed ledger technology called called blockchain. So this article talks about how blockchain could be used in diplomatic communication. So it led me to, to ask Professor Holmes here whether there are any examples of diplomatic communications where we're not really sure of the identity of the sender, right? That, right. that uh, one, one way you might think about using blockchain is to verify that you're really talking to who you think you're talking to. And this kind of opened up a, a broader question about how do we know who's on the other end of the line generally and whether there are any examples of kind of false communication where the sender is purporting to be representing someone that, that they're not representing. And that kind of led to this idea for a paper. And Marcus, maybe you want to give kind of the, the theoretical background for, for the article that we're working on. Yeah. I mean, I think it actually, when we were talking about this on email, it, it, it signaled to me, uh, that there's actually an area of international politics where this could be potentially quite important, but is, is kind of under-theorized. One of the examples that 
I, I can't remember, Jeff, if you came up with it or I came up with it, but we, we quickly sort of landed on a, an example that doesn't quite hit exactly at the sort of blockchain piece of this necessarily, but I think it's indicative of, of the problem, which is the so-called Iran uh, facts that happened in 2003. Um, and I've actually told this story to my students before, but I think it's a, it's a fascinating uh, case for those of you that, that don't know about this. But basically, the story is that they're sitting around the State Department in 2003, and they get a fax like an old school fax, like a, a machine that, that transmits letters and things like that uh, very mechanically over the telephone line. Can you, can you explain how that technology works, Marcus? Because I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little unclear. Facsimile technology? Facsimile technology. Yeah, I believe it's similar to in the old days when you had like a 2400 baud modem and you would call up to like a bulletin board system, a BBS, uh, and use like software that would send data at very slow speeds and like zeros and ones across the wire. And then the, the software would figure out what that meant. Uh, basically, yeah, you just used like 10 words that I've never heard before. So I don't know, BOD and BBS. This is, yeah. I'm very old. Super old. Uh, in any case, a fax machine basically is a way to send a letter to somebody uh, over, over a wire. And this fax that arrived was very interesting. It came from the Swiss ambassador in Iran. So uh, our Historically, our relationship with Iran is very complicated. We don't have ambassadors there, but we have the Swiss ambassador who sort of serves as an intermediary. And the Swiss ambassador in this text basically said uh, that the Iranians are very interested in making a deal. Um, and it was very precise in the things that they would agree to do if the United States would uh, follow through. So, you know, things like not pursuing terrorism or cracking out terrorism and stuff like that. Now, you have to remember 2003, what's going on. What's going on is you have the Iraq war and Iran being one third of the axis of evil uh, from that, that State of the Union speech that George W. Bush gave in 2002 is probably a little bit concerned about what's coming for them. Because if a rational person might look at and see the United States invade Iraq and think maybe we're next, by the way, North Korea is, is thinking similar things. And so at the State Department, they get this fax from the Swiss ambassador saying, I am conveying information to you that leadership, high-level leadership in Iran wants to make a deal. And I have a roadmap, and here's how we can get it done. And the folks at the State Department looked at this fax, and they basically said, we don't know what to make of this, right? And they said, we don't know what to make of this because, number one, it was out of character from the Iranians. And so they thought, is this really the Iranians? Sending this? Because if it was the Iranians, why does it seem so weird to us what they're saying? Because we had no indication on the ground uh, that they would be interested in any of this. They hadn't said anything that, that suggested they'd be interested in a deal. But it, the things that they were putting in the, in the deal actually weren't that crazy. And so the State Department folks, you know, including Colin Powell at the time, was kind of like, I don't know what to make of this. And one of the concerns that the folks had at the State Department was how much of this message is coming from the Swiss ambassador and how much was actually coming from the Iranians. And the reason, ultimately, subsequently, when they, they got interviewed about why they didn't take action on this, on this fax. And so you might ask, by the way, why, why don't we have a deal with Iran? Why didn't this, this you know, go forward? It was because the officials who looked at this letter fundamentally did not believe it. They didn't believe necessarily that the content was, was accurate. But they also, and I think most importantly for the paper that Jeff and I are, are working on, didn't know who the sender actually was. Basically, the problem was they received this fact, and it's unclear whose views are represented in the fact. Is this the true Iranian view? Is this leadership? Or is this the sort of uh, intermediated version from the Swiss ambassador who might have some understanding of what the Iranians are saying, but maybe is, is embellishing a little bit, maybe he's going a little bit too far. 
And so the folks in the State Department at the time don't act on this on this fact. They don't, you know, get everything ready and go try to make a deal with the Iranians because fundamentally they don't trust it. And so what I started thinking about and what what you, Jeff, uh, started thinking about was that this is kind of an interesting problem that that doesn't really get talked a whole lot about in international politics. We we talk about signals that are sent. Right. And so something like a fax, I think a, a lot of people talk about is like a cheap talk kind of signal. Very much like the topic of or the title of this podcast, right? It's cheap talk because it's just words. They're privately sent words that show up on a fax machine. Really, these things are easy to say and not follow up on. And so a lot of people would sort of automatically discount anything that's coming across on a fax machine, which I think is quite rational and probably the thing that most of us should be doing when we just get some random facts. But we tend to think about these these signals that are sent um, in terms of the content itself and less about who the sender of the signal is. So there's a large literature about how trustworthy signals are. And so all of our listeners will be familiar with the idea of costly signals and the idea of of what, you know, Robert Jervis talks about as indexes or indices where, you know, these are things that are like signals that are sent are very difficult to fake. And so there's a whole range of sort of ways to think about how trustworthy signals are. But to our knowledge, not many people, if anyone, has really looked at the, the problem of not understanding or knowing who the sender of the signal is. So it might be that the content of the signal is actually different than the sender of the signal. And it, it could also be the case that the content of the signal is just fine. But if you're uncertain about this, the sender of the signal, you might discount what you're seeing. And so this Iran facts kind of opens up this, this world of possibilities where there's questions about the content of the, the signal itself. But there's also questions about the sender of the signal, too. We know technically, physically, it came from the Swiss ambassador. But does the content reflect his views or does the con- content actually reflect the Iranian leadership? And so I think this is actually kind of an interesting puzzle that we, we want to take a look at. Yeah, and I think this all kind of comes from the fact that many communications function through intermediaries in, in, in diplomacy. And it, it's fairly rare that you have two leaders sitting in a room together doing face-to-face diplomacy. Most diplomacy isn't that way. It's through the intermediary of diplomats right, who are kind of representing the views of the, their home government to this other government, or sometimes non-diplomats who act as intermediaries. And this is a problem that goes back a long way. How do you validate that the thing that you're hearing from your intermediary is really coming from the place they say it's coming from, and that they're representing correctly the views of their home government? So this this problem dates back a long time to the Middle Ages. And in my extensive research for this paper, I have spent a lot of time reading about the ways that diplomats in the Middle Ages would transmit the views of the king and or the monarch. And, and this, this is a really interesting issue. So they, they used to stamp the messages from the king with a seal, um, with a wax seal. And then that would tell the receiver of the message that this came from the, from the monarch. But then you had the problem of fake seals and people would, you know, they knew they knew this was a thing. They would uh, make fake seals that looked like the monarch seal and purport to be sending information from the king. And sometimes people would use this as a way to get themselves benefits from other countries. So one kind of form of commerce that's happening in this time period is that the there would be territories that would pay money back to the home monarch, you know, to leave them alone, basically. Uh, as a protection racket. 
and the territory would be willing to give money to the representative of the monarch to bring back. And so that provided a strong incentive for folks to pretend to be coming from the monarch to collect the money. And they would collect the money, but they wouldn't really be from the monarch. And so you had this issue of kind of fake seals. There's a whole literature on this in um, this kind of weird corner of history uh, that people have looked at. And it, But it, this is an issue that, that continues to this day, obviously. So it's not just faxes that are, that are the problem. Um, we have intermediaries working in all elements of, of diplomacy. And you sometimes see attention given to how close to the president is the ambassador to a particular country. And this is kind of a weird discussion that happens every time there's a new U.S. administration that you'll have the, the press in, in the U.K. or Japan or some U.S. ally will be speculating about, well, you know, the president named this person to be ambassador. And that's really good news for Japan because this person has the ear of the president. They can just call up the president and talk to them. And, and, and th- why would that matter? Right. I think that's a like a really interesting question. Like, who cares how close to the president that individual is? The only reason that matters is if you think there is some kind of intermediation effect that comes from the the actual ambassador to this to this country, that somehow if the ambassador is closer to the president, then the information you're getting from the ambassador, the message you're getting from the ambassador or the transmission of information back to the president is somehow affected by that relationship. I mean, we have a whole State Department apparatus that's designed to make it kind of irrelevant who that individual is as ambassador. But the fact that people still worry about this and still talk about it suggests that people are at least placing some importance on this idea of how reliable is the intermediary and how close are they to the original source of the information. Yeah, I think it actually opens up a lot of, of interesting questions. You know, it's we, we tend to think about intermediaries um, in diplomacy as a question of trust like do you do you trust the intermediary you know in other words are they gonna are they gonna go and like backstab you somehow are they gonna go try to play both sides that type of thing we haven't really you know thought about it in terms of like is the information that we're getting actually accurate like is it a true reflection of what the the intentions of the king or the president are um or is it sort of like this this embellishment or or deceptive type of stuff that's that's going on for whatever reason right and so you can think back to the Iran facts example. I mean, if, if the Iranian leadership had a way, like a symbol uh, or some type of seal that they could have put on this fax and that the State Department could see that seal and see that fax and be like, oh, okay, this is actually coming straight from Iran. This isn't, this isn't the ambassador sort of making this up. This is actually really from, from them. Maybe that would have encouraged them to take it a little bit more seriously. Now, the odds of them actually making a deal with Iran obviously were quite low, but maybe they would have pursued it a little bit more than just sort of you know, thinking that this is not something that they need to pay attention. To. So I think this is this is actually quite important. The other thing that we talk about, Jeff, in the paper that I, I think is relevant is this sort of technological kind of aspect, because we've been talking about intermediaries in the sort of human sense, right? We have these ambassadors or diplomats who kind of serve as an intermediary between parties. And the question there is, can you trust them? And is the information that's being sent uh, accurate. By the way, I always think of the telephone game when we're when we're talking about this paper because that's sort of the idea here. It's sort of if I tell you something and you tell somebody else something and they'll say somebody else something, what they hear at the end of that chain is some variant of what I said, but it might not be an exact replica. It might be sort of a changed version of it. So we're trying to basically solve uh, that problem in a, in a sense. But technology can change uh, the the content or the the sender of a signal as well. So the the most obvious one would be a hacking 
type of situation where if you could, could hack a cable wire, for example. So if this Iran fax was actually sent by China or sent by some other party, you know, that would be an obvious example of, of sort of the signal uncertainty kind of getting messed up. But I wonder if there's also some more subtle areas where technology can affect the signal sender uncertainty problem. Do you have examples that you can think of, Jeff? There is an issue associated with the security of solutions that are designed to eliminate this this signal sender uncertainty problem. So one one solution to the facts in 2003 is that President Bush picks up the phone and calls the supreme leader in Iran and is like, let's talk about this because we're getting some some conflicting information over here. Let's cut out the middleman, you know, let's cut out the middleman and and just hammer it out. And that's fine. Um, and sometimes uh, leaders do that. But there is almost always still some kind of intermediary. Right. So uh, in the case of a phone call, it would be a translator, for example. What, didn't we talk about this a little bit that like. There is diplomatic resistance to the idea of direct communications between leaders that aren't like pre-written and pre-typed and and yeah among among the right among the people like the State Department they don't like that at all right right because like you know what if they go off script you but know, the leaders love it right the leaders like it yeah. so <laughs> and that's so, why that's why summits they go off by themselves and have little walks and stuff like that. right so like if you set up say a hotline that would allow this to happen between the U.S. president and the uh, Iran supreme leader, well, then there's potential for hacking into that technology and either, you know, stealing that information or pretending to be the president when it's not the president or something like that. And that's that's true, even if there isn't a hotline, right? Like people can pretend to be uh, emissaries without being actual emissaries. And there are some high profile examples of this that, you know, didn't go didn't work well. The former Afghan president who was in charge of leading the the negotiations for a while with the Taliban was assassinated by an emissary who claimed to be from the Taliban um, there to make peace, but it was instead a, a suicide bomber. So, you know, th this kind of emissary problem is is real, regardless of technology. But if there's technology there, then there could be a way to spoof that technology to pretend you're someone you're not or hack into it to get access to that information. And that's where there are a variety of ways to kind of secure those communications. And this original article that was kind of the seed of this idea really emphasizes the use of blockchain to secure Zoom calls, basically, between leaders, which is, you know, something that may or may not ever happen. There's resistance to bringing particular kinds of technologies into the Oval Office where, you know, they could be exploited. And I don't think blockchain is the only way to do it, right? There are a lot of ways to secure computer networks and to make everyone on both sides have confidence that the person on the other end is who they say they are. Um, and blockchain is just one of, of many ways to do that. But it's certainly uh, a promising option. But I think this is all kind of premised on the idea that the solution to this problem is direct communications between leaders. And I'm not sure that's really the, the solution to all of this, because there's, there's limited bandwidth for that sort of thing. I mean, it's fine in the context of some crisis, but that doesn't deal with the problem generally when most of the communication that's going on diplomatically is already through intermediaries anyway. So I, I think this is kind of just a very special case of communications that we want to cut out an intermediary to solve some particular problem. Right. A special, a special type of case, but, but incredibly important, right? I mean, so I think when what you, what you said was kind of interesting, you know, George W. Bush could have picked up the phone and called somebody in Iran, rather Supreme Leader, somebody that's actually a human being and said, you know, look, we got this strange facts. Uh, how much of this is true? 
if you think if you run through the counterfactual, I think you, you sort of think of two different things. One, if he had made that call, there's the potential for some type of groundbreaking uh, realization on both sides of the deal is possible. So there is there is that positive part of it. But there's also this sense in which, you know, George W. Bush is probably unlikely to make that call because from a negotiation perspective, he doesn't actually have a whole lot. I mean, what he's saying is I, I intuit that you might be interested in a deal, which is a, in a way sort of suggesting to the other side that we believe that we would like to make a deal. So you sort of give up something by making the phone call, too. So there are these political reasons why maybe that middleman is not going to be cut out. In other words, the middleman serves a political purpose as much as a information transmission purpose. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so there are a lot of reasons you don't pick up the phone and call the adversary. And, you know, signaling potential for signaling weakness is one of them. This goes back to all the reasons why it's hard to have a summit between leaders, because they want to be do you want to have a deliverable? There's going to be political you know, assets on the line, the potential for embarrassment if you do that sort of thing. The hotlines in particular bring forth a number of, of potential issues. So for, for many years, particularly in nuclear diplomacy, we've tried to push for confidence building measures like hotlines between leaders that can allow parties to de-escalate if, there's, if they're in a crisis. The problem is the one way you can signal how upset you are uh, with the other side is by unplugging the phone, right? Um, by, by refusing to take calls from the adversary. And so in, in reality, in effect, what has happened is that all these hotline plans between India and Pakistan on the military side, um, South Korea, North Korea, have turned into things that countries can do to signal how upset they are with the other side. It's giving countries one more thing they can end in order to send a signal. So these hotlines haven't been very durable because countries have been willing to sacrifice them in order to say, hey, I'm annoyed at you. And so we haven't really seen hotlines be used in the way that we would like them to be used. And I think people are also worried about kind of a future where there is deep fake technology and other ways of kind of spoofing people that uh, we should anticipate when we're building in, when we're, when we're designing in these kinds of approaches to, to building confidence between countries. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the other thing, too, is that these, these various technologies may be of, of limited use for, you know, the adversaries of we're talking about but you could see like you know if the united states and france had more um sort of uh routinized ability to have these types of communications when this whole australia AUKUS thing is is going down you know maybe it would help if there were there were more secure ways to be sure that the signals that we're sending to uh macron and the way that he's sending back to, to biden or whoever are, are secure you could even see how this would actually even among allies be somewhat beneficial we can sort of nail this signal sender uncertainty problem uh, it would just make facilitating communication uh, much more more easy to do, it seems to me. So I should say for the listener, uh, Professor Holmes has done a pretty decent job of putting together a first draft. I mean, it's not a complete first draft, but there are there's an introduction, there's a literature review, there's some development of a theory. This whole we have podcast two- is just an attempt to shame me for not doing my part of this of this project. One thing that the readers, uh, the listeners have to understand is that co-authored work is difficult. You know, the, the, it's always the case that one person is doing more of the, the lion's share than, than the other. But I would say we have a theory. We have we have a two by two. Uh, Jeff was very good at coming up with a nice two by two uh, of these various cases of, of single sender uncertainty. So I feel like we're getting there. So I guess one thing we could say to the listeners who are have been with us this whole time in August of 2022, where do we think this paper will be? Will we will we have a full, complete draft? Will this paper be published? Will we have presented this somewhere at a at a colloquium somewhere, maybe London School of Economics or University of Melbourne or something like that? Or or is it just going to languish? 
I'm I'm hoping to have done significantly more research research into these seals from Middle uh, Easter from Middle Ages uh, monarchs, which yes. is the, the part of this that's most interesting to me. That's really going to sell the sell this paper. That's right. Well, it opens up a whole new set of journals that we can submit to, um, the Journal of right. Sigilography, which is uh, you know a great read. I, I'm uh, not sure they'll understand our citations uh, <laughs> and signals, but hey, so so Marcus, this is our our season finale and. Uh, I thought what we could do in the five minutes we have left is to just do a little lightning round of our international relations related predictions for the coming year. We've got a couple of upcoming conflicts uh, that people are talking about. We got uh, U.S., China, Taiwan stress happening. There's the risk of uh, another Russia, Russian invasion in or kind of a, a reignition of the conflict in Ukraine. Next year, when we have our... Um, Season premiere next <laughs> all goes well. Season, season premiere. Season premiere um, next next August next September. Will we've had any of these conflicts? Do you think that there's going to be a war in Taiwan in the next year? A war in Ukraine? Jeffrey, as somebody who studies prediction, I believe that you realize this is a very a weird way of asking this question. What you should be asking me is uh, the probability of a particular event happening, and then also the confidence that I have. In that probabilistic assessment, is that correct? That is. That, so I was going to wait for you to give me an answer, and then oh, I was gonna, I see you're going to trap. You're going to trap. Yeah, I was going to trap. That's you, great. Yeah. No, see, yeah. I'm on to you. I see. What, we've been doing this long enough that I know yeah. exactly what you're. Um, I'm a pretty optimistic guy, Jeff, and I don't think we're going to see violence in either of those two instances. So I actually think Russia, uh, at the end of the day, will will sort of back down, partially because I think Biden um, is just going to uh, find some sort of diplomatic uh, way out of this, and I don't. I don't see. Russia kind of pushing their luck by invading Ukraine or, or doing something silly. Um, I also don't think necessarily, I mean, I know if you look at Putin's sort of um, approval ratings with, with the Crimea uh, annexation, he, he got a bump in, in popularity. I'm not sure that Putin necessarily thinks that furthering their incursion into, Crimea, into Ukraine will help him all that much. So I, I don't, I don't necessarily see that happening. And I don't think either side in the Taiwan conflict uh, wants any type of, of altercation there. So I think we're going to see more, uh, you know, military exercises and blustery rhetoric and things like that. But I anticipate the status quo continuing to, to August. One question I have for you, Jeffrey, though, a conflict that we don't hear that much about these days, which is a perennial conflict is Israel, Palestine. Do you see any movement on that issue in the next six to eight? Months? No, I don't. And I, I think there are a number of reasons that uh, I wouldn't anticipate uh, big changes in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one is that the U.S. isn't interested in devoting its attention to the, to the Middle East in the way that would be required to make this happen. And I think the Biden administration, like the Trump administration before it, has learned the lesson that trying to make peace in the Middle East is um, not something that's going to pay dividends and is going to distract you from other things that are happening in the world. It really sinks a lot of resources if you want to try to do that. And so uh, I think the Biden administration is rightly focused on other threats that they feel they can really um, manage as opposed to the the situation between Israel and the Palestinians, which is uh, uh, so entrenched and, and so difficult that I think um, the, the party, the U.S. doesn't have much stomach for for trying to solve it. On the part on the party for the parties themselves, I, I don't know. I think the best we can hope for is kind of a, a 
reduction of tensions, kind of an easing of the situation um, more than any kind of real, real settlement in the near term. Um, what do you think? Are you more optimistic about that? I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I think you're ultimately right. I mean, I, I did see that Biden um, was going to increase support for the Palestinians. So monetarily, you know, supporting them and things of that nature. Um, so I think there might be room for a little bit of progress, but I, I agree with you. Unfortunately, I don't see this really being in one of the priorities uh, that Biden's going to be looking at. I think if, if there's anything that's going to happen in the Middle East, it'll be the Iran uh, nuclear deal, which I'm also kind of an optimist on this one. I was I was telling my students the other day, I would not be shocked if, if Biden was able to pull this off. We talked in our last episode or the episode before that about the various reasons why this is going to be incredibly difficult. But I think given the the foreign policy challenges that face Biden, you know, you think about China, you think about Russia, uh, you think about Cuba, think about uh, the general sort of you know, allies situation in Australia, the AUKUS, the France thing. I think actually one of the easier ones in a, in a, in a set of very difficult cases is the Iran nuclear deal, because there's been a blueprint in the past for how to do it. And I know people will say, well, why would the Iranians agree to a deal knowing that in 2024, potentially, we could have Chris Christie as president or DeSantis or Trump who any, any, any one of the Republicans is, on day one is likely to get out of the deal. But I think if you're the Iranians, the thing that you have in front of you is a potential for economic sanction relief. And so in the short term, the idea of making a deal and getting something is actually pretty attractive. And so we, we, we went around this last time, but I still remain optimistic that from the Iranian perspective, actually having some type of deal would not be the worst thing in the world economically. And for Biden's perspective, somebody who's been languishing in approval rating and has you know terrible trouble with with the way the afghanistan pullout worked i think he could really use a positive deal i think getting you know renewing obama's new iran nuclear deal i think is exactly what would hit the spot so i actually think in august 2022 it would not shock me if we were here having a conversation about how well the iran nuclear deal is looking at the moment yeah, I, I don't think that the Iran nuclear deal is going to move the needle on domestic approval ratings for 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 Joe Biden. But um, I do think the Biden administration could use a win uh, anywhere and um, in foreign policy in particular. So it's it's, they, you know, they just keep taking hits. And so I think the Iran deal is doable. I think you're right about that. But it really depends on Iran and kind of the, oh, political, yeah. the political will for Iran, because remember, the deal exists, right? The deal is still there. And it, it, there are a bunch of other parties that are still kind of party to the deal. And it hasn't yeah. gone away, although yeah. Iran is no longer complying with it. Uh, it. It's still there. So that makes it a whole lot easier than a lot of these other problems in international relations where we, we have to create a deal out of whole cloth. So so I think you're right that there's reason to be optimistic. And I, uh, I hope they can get it done, because I think that that putting some constraints on Iranian nuclear progress is really important right now, because otherwise we're going to find ourselves in a situation in a year where there's real questions about whether Iran already has the ability to detonate a nuclear weapon. And um, we're, we're very close to that point already. And so, so being able to bring this back under some kind of structure where it can give the international community confidence that Iran is behaving with some restraint will help head off other kinds of crises that will come from Iran developing nuclear weapons, like Saudi Arabia seeking nuclear weapons uh, and, and, and such. So I, th I think it's, it's an important area to, of focus. I'm more optimistic still about Yemen 
which is a horrible conflict with huge consequences for civilians. And it's just uh, uh, been a very destructive war um, and is a humanitarian nightmare. And I'm, I'm actually most confident about that uh, conflict being resolved, partly because the military situation there has gone in, in favor of one of the parties sufficiently that it looks like uh, there will be a military victory if, if nothing changes. And also because the U.S. has really just cut off support for uh, Saudi efforts there. And so I think that, that those two things combined are, are, are going to have an effect on the outcome, hopefully. And so hopefully next year when we're talking about this, um, we won't have this conflict in our big list of, of horrible crises going on in the world. I think, Jeff, just as a closing uh, thought here, because I have to make my children dinner. The biggest question for me going into next season is what COVID looks like. So I think all of, all of these questions are important ones. But to me, the biggest one is as we, we sit here in early December and there's this Omicron variant, which depending on who you talk to, some people say it doesn't look like that big of a deal. I say, well, it is kind of a big deal. I think the, the jury is still out on that. Whether or not we see more variants, what, what it means for vaccine you know, efficacy, uh, all of these things are still big questions. And I, I sincerely hope that by the end of season two, the pandemic would be sort of in the rear view mirror and we would be talking about, you know, the post-COVID world and the roaring 20s that we were going to have. And, you know, we were going to be, get beyond all these supply chain issues and all the rest of it. But unfortunately, we're still still sort of in this pandemic. Um, and depending on all these variants go, we might be in this pandemic for quite a while. And so I think to me, the biggest question is not so much a foreign policy question as it is sort of a world health, public health question. What does COVID look like in August 2022? And are we wearing masks in the fall 2022 semester? Big open question. Yeah. Well, here's hoping that um, season three kicks off with uh, with a with a large super spreader in person event that we don't we don't have to worry about. <laughs> and we uh, invite. By the way, all of our listeners are invited. Uh, for current students, former students, please come to our super spreader event. There will be hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, stay tuned to this this feed. We can use our research money on podcasts. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. We, they'll, yeah. they'll approve that, no problem. And no problem. so stay tuned to this feed for uh, details about where where that, where that and when that will be taking place. Stay subscribed. That way, that way next year, you get a surprise uh, podcast from um, from your internet friends, Professor Holmes and Professor Kaplow. And hit us hit us up on uh, on speakeasy.org, right? What is it? Is it? <laughs> not speakeasy.org. That's definitely not it. Oh, well, um, thank you, Marcus. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Marcus, for joining me this season. And um, we it's been it's been great chatting with you. And thanks. Thanks to all our listeners for for joining us. Stay tuned for the blooper reel at the end. (laughs) All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you next year. Yes, Jeffrey. You you locked up on me. Oh, no. What was the last thing you heard? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you were telling me about your Thanksgiving. My tooth story, my, my, my oral surgery. <laughs> so I go down to Newport News. It's 6.45 in the morning. The endodontist sticks this drill in the middle of your tooth. Oh, God. This is so awful. Just, just, really, this is, this, this is going to be for the blooper reel. This is just this is a rough episode. I feel like... What are we... Did you not get any of that? I got some of... Yeah, until like a minute. Until like uh, 15... Go back 15 seconds. You were talking about... I wasn't listening. I don't know. <laughs> I was waiting for my turn. Oh God! You think about what you're going to say, right? <laughs> I'm, no, I'm like reading you got the a paper. Outline there. I'm reading the paper while you're talking, so I could come up with something to say. Ah. Oh man. All right. Well, I'll see you in 2022, my friend.